Yo, 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 Thought Warriors. Watch and listen to Higher Learning where we dissect the biggest topics in black entertainment, politics, and sports. Twice a week, we react to the most important and timely conversations, often inviting guests to offer unique perspectives. Listen to Higher Learning free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All right, I'm here with... uh... Former President Barack Obama, Bakari Sellers. We have him for an hour. We're going to get right into it. We're going to talk sports. We're going to do a little speed round. Then we're going to talk about your book, Sports First. <laughs> um, you got involved with saving the NBA season, which you've talked about, um, how they called you, LeBron and Chris and those guys. The thing that fascinated me, you've turned into a big brother slash conciliary for all the superstar athletes. When did this happen? Was Were you in office when this happened or was it after? You know, actually, uh, while I was president, I got to know a bunch of these guys. You know, they'd come by the White House. Uh, a lot of them knew I was fans uh, of their work. Um, they supported a lot of our uh, outreach efforts. You know, Michelle's Let's Move initiative, or if we were trying to, uh, you know, get people signed up for the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and so became friends with a bunch of them. And, and uh, when... Stuff came up. They'd sometimes call and or reach out, and uh, you know the the fact that you see this generation of athletes actually paying attention and being interested in uh, social issues uh, was something that we encouraged because they've got a whole bunch of influence. You you uh you have two daughters. I have two daughters. Bill Bill is raising a a, a young lady as well, and. Um, one of the things in the, the activism that we saw in the WNBA is something that was so heartening. The women in the WNBA, from Maya Moore to Asia Wilson, et cetera, kind of led that charge. Are you excited to see the growth and the kind of emergence of this league and how it's finally fur- flourishing and they are the leaders on the forefront of the social justice movement? Well, uh, listen, I, I think um, let's stipulate that women generally are superior to men. Uh <laughs> I second that. <laughs> women athletes are no different. It was interesting. There, there was such a contrast when you had uh, the men's teams 
championship teams come and then the women's teams come. And, you know, the, the, the guys were all nice, but a lot of them would just kind of mumble. And, you know, the same way I, that all of us probably did if we were 21 or 22 and showed up at the White House. And the women, you know, they would be articulate and engaged <laughs> and, you know, ask these policy questions. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so I wasn't surprised. Um, but, you know, you look at somebody like Maya Moore, who I've known for quite some time, because, you know, uh, my first year she came uh, as, as a, a Connecticut champion. And, uh, you know, her investment to the degree where she actually left basketball because uh, she cared so deeply about it um, was impressive and, and not surprising. And it's it's a hallmark of uh, an example of where a law really did make a difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, Title Title Nine really changed uh, the landscape for sports. And those of us who have daughters and see how valuable it is to have women have the same opportunities to compete and excel uh, on the field or on the court, um, and and the confidence it gives them, and uh, you know, th- their ability then to, to translate that success later in life, um, you know, it, it was uh, a really big deal uh, that at the time, you know, because I'm old enough, you aren't, Bakari, but I'm old enough to kind of remember where just Billie Jean King versus Bobby Riggs was a huge event. The idea that an obviously superior female athlete would beat an old guy was somehow shocking to people. Um, yeah, to see that change that's happened, uh, you know, is all for the better. You know, we, as, as you mentioned, Bakar is way younger than us, but <laughs> yes. we grew I, up. I, I am. <laughs> yes. We grew up I with, have to, uh, I have to, sorry, Bill, to interrupt, but I, I do have to publicly give props. Bakari was one of my earliest supporters in my unlikely race to run for the presidency. Uh, don't blow he was his a young up. state legislator. And clearly had nothing to lose, and as a consequence, uh, endorsed my race uh, uh, very early on when people still couldn't pronounce my name. I was still looking for my name in the book. I read the whole thing twice. And <laughs> yeah, I, maybe in I volume even, two. <laughs> maybe in volume two. I was looking in the index, but that's okay. You're going to get a whole chapter. But we, we were growing up um, in Muhammad Ali, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, the big summit with, with uh, Kareem and... And Ali, Jim Brown, Jim Brown and- all those guys. And, and then you had, even when you had Russell in the White House and you gave him the Medal of Honor and, you know, Russell was a guy in the 60s who would give speeches about, you know, he'd go to college campuses and talk about, I want everybody out here to think that someday, you know, the, there's no ceiling for them, that someday they could be the president of the United States. Then he comes to the White House and visits you. It felt like this year revived some of that stuff and reading some of the quotes that you had about it, you just seem completely energized and jazzed that this torch had been passed, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, you're right. I, I, I do think it's generational. You and I, I'm, I'm older than you, but, but we caught the tail end of the sixties Yeah, and there was still that memory and that legacy. You know, Muhammad Ali was still active. I have vivid memories of him speaking and, uh, you know, even a figure like Arthur Ashe, who obviously had a very different style, but, you know, who was very early on talking about South Africa and anti-apartheid and AIDS. And, 
to see this generation pick that back up, uh, I think has been uh, all for the good. Part of it is obviously that the culture itself has changed, right? You know, sports culture is always a little bit youth culture and uh, young people got activated and they, these guys are all part of that generation. And I think, uh, you know, obviously you saw it, uh, a high watermark of that kind of activism uh, this summer uh, after the George Floyd murder, but uh, fairly consistently, they have the same kind of attitude that I actually see with my daughters. Uh, and I write a little bit about this in the book. They believe in the stuff that their parents and their teachers taught them, even if sometimes the parents and the teachers didn't completely believe it themselves. I mean, they genuinely believe in equality. <laughs> they genuinely don't understand how somebody could be, uh, you know, discriminated against because of race or because of sexual orientation or what have you. And uh, they're almost surprised and and disappointed uh, in a way that, um, you know, is not naive, but is instead, I think, uh, reflective of um, their values and, and their willingness to fight for their values. And I, and I think that's, uh, that's a positive thing. The challenge, I think, for them, and this was true, you know, for Ali and Russell and Brown, is always how do you translate that activism then into concrete measures. And, and, and that's a lot of times when I'm talking to these guys, you know, what, what re really the conversation is about is, okay, we know we want to do something. We're willing to put ourselves out there, but how do we translate our impulse towards social justice into something concrete that will actually uh, do some good and make a difference? And a lot of them, because they've become more sophisticated on the business side, they now uh, are eager to get uh, a strategy, you know, to, to, and figure out, all right, how can I leverage my platform, but also how can I, you know, leverage my relationship with my owner or how can I, uh, you know, uh, deal with, uh, you know, my shoe sponsors or what have you. And, and that I think is, uh, uh, is a, uh, the next evolution is them translating this, not just from protest, but then also understanding how they can use their power, uh, which is significant, formidable, more than it was probably uh, 20 or 30 years ago. I think one of the major differences we see is now, instead of it just being the star athlete on a particular team, it's one through 15, all using their platform. It's not just, you know, LeBron James, but it's also, you know, Jared Dudley or whoever doesn't take off their warm-up. But my question is, you know, these players, they utilize their their capital in, in, uh, in Milwaukee. You had the arena open in Atlanta. State Farm Arena was open. So what do these players do next? And how does how does a vice president elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, how do they leverage these individuals to utilize their platform to to do what's next, which is kind of create that tangible change? Well, look, uh, you know, there are going to be specific instances. Let's say you've got a Georgia senatorial race coming up uh, and obviously voting is still relevant. Um in each of their markets, you know, one of the things that I uh, have have suggested um, is that something like the criminal justice system is actually pretty local, right? Decisions really aren't made at the presidential level. They're made 
the mayor appoint, appoints uh, the police chief or there's a police board or, uh, you know, there are contract negotiations about, uh, you know, uh, how uh, police are, you know, held accountable if something uh, goes wrong. And the district attorneys and the state's attorneys are, are making all those decisions. So uh, for a lot of them, I think getting involved locally on the issues they care most about can actually have a huge impact and make a big difference. And uh, obviously, you don't have to be a LeBron uh, to have influence if you are a star or even just a player in that city. Um, the, the other thing, though, uh, that I, I've talked to them about is is creating a structure that can sustain itself. I, I mean, I, I joke, I don't necessarily... I didn't save the NBA season, but these guys had a question about whether they should go back to play after Milwaukee, after the Milwaukee Bucks uh, uh, walked, decided not to play, and and all the NBA players in the bubble were trying to figure out what to do. One thing I said to them is, look, the reason you guys are calling me at midnight is because you don't have an organization that is staffed that can uh, strategize keep up with stuff, you know, pay attention to the details. Because all these guys are still young men who have a profession and a, a craft that they've got to focus on. It's it's too much to expect to them, uh, uh, for them to be experts in every one of these areas. But they, if they pooled the resources and they had a couple of staff attorneys, uh, they had, you know, uh, communications uh, and uh, an organizational uh, network that was giving them all information about how they could have an impact on any given issue that they care about. Uh, that, I think, could be uh, really powerful. You know, you write in your book about lessons you learned from previous generations, right, and older politicians, stuff like that. I'm so fascinated by this generation of athletes, and it, really starting with the LeBron era, learning from the mistakes of the people before them, right? You think about the guys, the Jordan era, everybody's kind of out for themselves and everyone's making a lot of money, but they don't care about public perception, any of that stuff. They're just, they care about succeeding and that's it. And that gradually evolves during LeBron era. And now you see these young guys coming in and they're like finished, polished products at age 21, 22, 23. I don't fully understand it, but they've also, the guys they're emulating now are LeBron off the court as well as on. And I'm sure you've talked to some of those guys. Are you, yeah. are you like blown away when you have conversations with these dudes? They're 25 and they're, they have this wherewithal of everything already. I mean, I, I think that they, uh, and their parents have learned from some of the mistakes of the past, both in terms of how to handle their finances. Yep. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. it is unlikely that you're going to see a repeat of somebody getting a hundred million dollar contract and ending up broke. Right. Yeah. Uh, because the Vin Baker uh, I think story. These, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and these guys have, uh, you know, a, a clear sense of how to negotiate with agents, how they think about their contracts, uh, how do they think about their endorsements? You know, what's interesting, uh, listening to them, by the way, it's not just that they're learning from the mistakes of some of their predecessors. They're also a hip hop generation and they've learned from the examples of guys like Jay-Z and, you know, Diddy and others who became entrepreneurs and, uh, you know, owners of their content. 
and, and and sort of liberated themselves from the old studio models and you know the the record deals where you know some great Motown artist uh, or others end up not having as much as you would think given uh, their popularity and and so that sort of cross pollination between hip hop and uh, athletes particularly in the NBA I think has been uh, interesting because they all see themselves as uh, uh, not just employees of a <clears throat> of a team, but they right. see themselves as uh, as an enterprise. Now, you know there are some downsides to this. You know, Bill, you've talked about this on your show. Um, it diminishes uh, to some degree team loyalty, right? So uh, the the kind of um, experience as a fan that you have of loving a team, even if it's a loser. Yeah. You think about the Chicago Cubs, right. And somebody like an Ernie Banks, right. right? Who is beloved, even though the Cubs never won. Right. But he was their guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, you lose some of that. Um, and you know, uh, I, I think that there's some downsides to how players are getting developed now because they think of themselves as an enterprise, the whole interaction with AAU and, mm. you know, uh, you know how they think about their own development, uh, I think in some cases leads to guys entering the league very sophisticated on the business side, but maybe don't have the same uh, skill sets and, and uh, you know, coaching that, let's say, Michael Jordan got at North Carolina or a Tim Duncan got from Wake Forest and, and – it means that, you know, if it's a LeBron uh, or, you know, some of these other guys, it doesn't matter. But for folks who may not be transcendent talents, you know, it, it, it may mean that uh, their careers on the basketball court or in other arenas may not be um, quite as polished when they come into the league. What do you – I mean, we, one of the things that we've seen in sports is a lack of diversity in the ownership ranks and, and and throughout coaching. I mean, me and Bill were talking prior too. I mean, we'll 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 chip in. I think I have about a thousand. Bill's going to do it a little bit more. If you want to buy the Bulls, we we can be a part of your team. Yeah. What are you I, doing? How have you not still, bought a team yet? It's been still, four years. What are you I still doing? Gotta pay, I still got to pay student loans. So <laughs> let, let, let me tell you something. I, the uh, the thing I wouldn't do is. Uh, you know, like like Jay Z was was quote unquote part owner of the Nets, right? Right, it's one percent. It means you get zero point one. Yeah, courtside seats and I, I don't know popcorn. what you else. Get popcorn. Yeah. Free <laughs> popcorn. Um, you know, uh, to to me, owning a team would only make sense if you actually have a controlling stake and you are then building a culture and and uh, you know uh, creating. Uh, the kind of organization uh, that, you know, like the Patriots or the Spurs where you have sustained excellence. And, uh, you know, I don't have that kind of money. No matter how many books I sell, <laughs> you know. I thought, uh, I thought when you did the Spotify deal and the book sale, I, book deal, I thought I was like, oh, he's making his move. He's, he's putting it together. <laughs> That's it. That's what he wanted to do. <laughs> the Bulls, he's talking to Reinsdorf. No, you know, Jerry, I, I, I know Jerry, and, uh, and, and I don't think Jerry's going to be selling anytime soon. No, no. <laughs> None of those guys want to get out of there.
the the thing that's impacted us the most, especially as an SEC football fan, I'm a big Gamecock fan. I miss being able to go to the stadium. Is this COVID nineteen and its effect on sports? How do you how do you think? I mean, you you've run a country. You're a leader of the free world. How do you think these sports franchises and leagues, from the wobble to the bubble to the NFL, not really caring what happens? They're gonna play football regardless. How do you think these leagues are handling this uh, this COVID outbreak? Yeah, and on top of that, the strategy is strategy is the NFL is just like we're plowing ahead. We're just playing the games. Yeah. The NBA is putting more thought into it. What would you do? <laughs> I, l- l- listen, I I would say that number one, it's hard for any of these sports leagues to do a good job if the White House is not doing a good job. If 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 at the top, folks are shambolic and dismissive and full of misinformation and politicizing stuff, then, you know, it, it leaves everybody else on their own uh, to have to make these ad hoc decisions. Uh, and so so with that caveat, I would say the NBA and, and Adam Silver handled it as well as it could have been handled. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, just generally – the, the partnership between the players, the owners, the commissioner, the, at, at least the dialogue, uh, you know, I don't want to over-romanticize it, but you do get a sense that everybody there figured out, look, we're all in this together. If we're going to do it right, this is what we have to do. It's going to require everybody to sacrifice. And, uh, you know, the fact that they came through that process and the, the playoffs ended up being really exciting, really well played. Uh, you know, kudos to them. Uh, th- that was impressive. Baseball, I thought, did a reasonably good job. Um, look, the, the, the NFL, uh, right now, uh, as we speak, I guess there's a game coming up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, with, with uh, uh, what, the Baltimore Ravens having like half their players not playing. Um, you know, it, it does feel maybe because it's, it, it's a 53 man roster that everybody feels more expendable and the notion is look you know we just put something up there uh you know i i don't i don't feel that uh they have been as cautious in terms of their design yeah um but but i'll be honest with you probably the, the the area where i'm most frustrated is college right because whatever happens at the professional level at least these are these are adults who are getting paid, and uh, you know they're making uh, you know a series of decisions that may be suboptimal for the players, but for the most part, uh, you know you're you're not putting other people at risk. Um, you know when I watch college football in particular right now, we'll see how basketball develops. Um, there is this sense of the economics driving uh, a, a series of decisions in which a bunch of very young people uh, are being put at risk in ways that are unnecessary. But but that gets me into a whole set of questions about the NCAA that could take up too much time on, uh, should, on should, this should, ath- should athletes get paid? NCAA athletes get paid? Yes. I, I, I think that uh, uh, the amount of money that is being made at the college level, the 
risks that, let's say, college football uh, players are being uh, uh, subjected to. Um, and the, the fact that, you know, uh, for many of these colleges, uh, you know, what, what these young people are doing are subsidizing athletic director salaries and coach salaries, uh, coach salaries. Uh, all, all of that argues for a, a better economic arrangement for them. Uh, and uh, I, I think there is a way of doing that that doesn't completely eliminate the uh, traditions and and the love we all have for college sports. Yeah, it just means that you know if Zion Williamson or uh, you know a uh, uh, you know Trevor Lawrence or, or somebody is participating in those sports and. Somebody, uh, the local car dealer or what have you, who, as it is, is already probably a booster and doing a whole bunch for that university, wants to also help that uh, student, uh, you know, with uh, their parents uh, or, you know, facilitate them, uh, you know, being able to get uh, a, a better training situation for their next stage, that penalizing those kids when everybody else is benefiting does not make sense to me. And and when you look at the history of the NCAA, NCAA and how it developed, uh, it developed specifically to insulate these institutions from claims made by these students. Uh, you know, the, uh, the whole myth of student athletes uh, really evolved in part because early on, uh, football players you know who were being brought in, you know, as ringers on these teams, uh, we're getting hurt and then suing for work for workers comp. And suddenly, uh, uh, the colleges figured out, you know, if we form this association and create this whole ideal of student athletes that, uh, you know, uh, we'll protect our pocketbooks. Um, so yes, we should, well, we, sh- we should make some changes there. First time I met you 2012, I gave you the solution. You didn't listen to me. You're in, you were president for four more years. I told you, you had to create a sports star position. You could have fixed this. Could you, have did, had, you did, you did, uh, you did suggest that now you didn't listen to me. You just ignore <laughs> it. You swatted me away like Matumbo. I do. I do take some credit for the, uh, the college playoff, which uh, as president, I promoted <laughs> it's fair. and has worked out pretty well. So come on, <laughs> there man. You, there as, you go. as is a major theme in the book, I didn't get everything done, but I got a lot done. <laughs> I do think the sports bar, the sports bar thing in 2020 was proved more than ever that we might've needed one, right? It was, it was just complete lawlessness depending on the sport. Well, and, and, uh, and a lot of, a lot of countries have it. And, yeah. and, you know, I, I've got, I, I, I have, uh, some things to, to uh, some ideas that if I were sports czar, I'd probably, you know, uh, promote. In your spare time, you could do it. It's like yeah, an I mean, hour it, a day. Yeah. Over breakfast. Uh, uh, NF, NFL overtime rule. Yeah. Change that. I don't You're understand out. how one team, if it scores a touchdown, the other team doesn't get the ball back. Doesn't make sense to me. Um Fair. Maybe maybe move the three point line back a little bit. Why? So only Dame Lillard and Steph can shoot? Yeah. It should be a little tougher. <laughs> you know, when I start seeing seven footers launching threes, 
That tells me it's it's gotten too easy. That's a it's, solid it, point. When Brooke let me Lopez ask, is making them, it's it's gone too far. <laughs> let me ask one of these generational questions for you older guys. Is Steph the greatest shooter of all time? I think he is. That, that, that's not even a question. Yeah. Absolutely. I think he has the best hand-eye coordination of just about anyone I've ever seen. I have not seen anybody who can shoot that way in as many ways, <laughs> in as unlikely ways as consistently as Steph Curry. And you know, you about, you know, I mean, I know Steph well. Uh, everything he does, he you know, uh, is just, it's precise and neat and tight. Uh, you know, w- one of the things I described, and, and you really saw this as present because all these athletes would come in, Olympic yeah. folks would come in. And, you know, these world-class athletes, they're like X-Men. Uh, or, you know, like some of them you can tell are like the Hulk, right? Yeah. You know, you're standing next to LeBron, you know he's a freak. Yeah. You stand next to self, Steph, and, you know, he's like one of those guys who he has some superpower with, you know, he takes off his glasses and say, you can't see right away, uh, but is just as much of a freak. It's just as not as obvious. Or, or you take even somebody like a Rondo. I remember the uh, the first time I, I shook hands with him, and he's shorter than me, but his arms like reach right. down to his ankles, and his hands are you know just buried mine, and you realize you no, know, there's a reason this guy's a professional. Um, you know, just because he looks normal, uh, but, but, he is not. Bakari, you know what? That he really just told us that he's down with Steph Curry in golf. Steph Curry has Steph, is Steph higher beats, than him in the in the with, head-to-head with, career earnings. With all due oh. respect to my president, Steph beats my president, Barack Obama, in golf every day of the week. Steph is a really good golfer. I mean, he, he, he's, he's, no, he, he's, you know, uh, Steph Curry, Ray Allen. You know what's interesting? The two best NBA golfers may also be the two best shooters of all time. Yeah, because it's hand eye. It's hand eye, yeah. muscle memory, you know, just being able to repeat. Uh, emotion. Uh, but what does that say again? about Charles Barkley? Got to be number three. So what does that say about his? his? <laughs> <Yeah>. Charles Barkley is <laughs> definitely not number three. What's <laughs> uh, this? This gives us a good entry into speed round. We're gonna do this fast because we want to talk about Let's your do book. It. First one. We'll go. Bakari and I will alternate here. Um, so golf. They have these televised celebrity skins golf matches. Yeah. Um, a. Would you ever do it? And B. Who's your partner? I would never do it, do it because. Look, the first time I chili dipped a shot or <laughs> took f- three to get out of the bunker, yeah. and now suddenly that's a gift, right? It's just playing over and over again on the internet. So no, not I, worth I, it. I, Who's your partner if you did do it? Alternate universe, you're doing it. Uh, well, you know, I I, I guess I Tiger. Why Why wouldn't I? <laughs> good Good answer. The best golfer of all time. <laughs> your Mount Your Mount Rushmore sports. Four across all sports. Ali, Jordan, Willie Mays. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Serena. I I perfect. I I bet you weren't going to say Serena. But Kai said I, you weren't going to say Serena. I I tell you. You look at her dominance it's over the that. second to none. She she might be the greatest that athlete longevity, of all time. I yeah. mean, she 
in terms of our lifetime, you know, you've got Brady, you've got Jordan, uh, you've got LeBron, uh, Phelps, Federer, Phelps. Yeah. Bolt, and Serena, right? I mean, you, you've got maybe those are the ones who you know, maybe Mike Trout, uh, you know, when his career is over, you might say the same thing. But but those folks were and Tiger, they were that much better than everybody else in their primes. They exceeded everyone else in a way that nobody else did. Maybe LeBron by the time he's done as well. Next 12 years, you're trying to win NBA titles. Giannis, Luca, or Zion? I want to see if if, if Giannis gets a mid-range mm. uh, this year. Okay. You know, everybody's worrying about Giannis getting a three-point shot. Giannis needs a 12-footer or a 15-footer. That's what matters, right? Uh if he does, I, then I think he's unstoppable. I, if he has the same shot as a Carl Malone or even a Kawhi, right, yeah. where in crunch time he can just pull up, who's going to block that shot? So uh, if he doesn't develop it, then then uh, then probably Luka just because more skill set. Although okay. Zion's just more fun to watch because <laughs> he's a monster. I got Luka. Yeah, I know yeah. you do, Bill. That's my yeah, guy. You're, you're, I'm actually you're, taking... You're, you're fantasizing once... Th- th- this is like the, the whole Larry Bird, you know, fantasy uh, what, coming he, back up in your head. He's the best 21-year-old player ever. He is Luka. remarkable. He's, he's pretty legit. remarkable. You better get on the bandwagon. I, I don't like the disrespect to Zion Williamson, my South Carolina boy right now. <laughs> I'm taking I'm taking Zion All right. every day of the week. Every oh, So 90s Bulls or last decade Warriors? Hmm. I'm, I'm always the Bulls will always be my team because because you know that hometown, uh, but those two teams are the two teams in the NBA, uh, I guess along with Showtime Lakers. Th- there are certain teams that transcend the sport, and uh, you have so much fun watching them. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that you don't respect the other champions, but those were teams that entertained as well as they played. Uh, and, and, and in that sense, uh, they're comparable, uh, right? 2016 Warriors was as much fun as basketball gets. Yeah. Yeah. The regular, that, that 25 game streak they had was fantastic. Um, your most fun moment as a dad during the quarantine, because underrated quarantine, Bakari's kids aren't old enough yet. Underrated quarantine, when you have teenage girls or older, they're stuck with you. They can't go anywhere. You get all this extra quality time you didn't expect. So what was your it, well, best and moment? It, and it, well, it's a it's it's a blessing because um, all the teenage stuff is kind of gone now. And they, they're just back and they love you again. And they want to spend time with you. And... You know they're funny and and uh, so like like I think a lot of families we went through that first month where we were playing games every night and doing a little arts and crafts projects and, right. and then slowly you know they started getting a little bored with us um, uh, maybe teaching uh, Malia and Sasha and Malia's boyfriend who was with us for a while spades. And then having some spades games. Um, That's contentious. 
Yeah, you know, and and teaching them how to properly trash talk and slap the cards down. And um, you might be getting out of Bill's wheelhouse right now. How dare you? <laughs> like, like I haven't played spades. I'm more stunned that Malia's boyfriend was quarantined with you. That this is the biggest revelation of the podcast. He's 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 uh, he's British. Wonderful young man. Um, uh, and he was sort of stuck because there was a whole visa thing, and he had a job wow. set up. Uh, and so, uh, so we took him in and I didn't want to like him, Yeah, but I, he, he's, he's a good kid. I, so I, the only thing you discover, uh, you, you, uh, this is not a surprise to you, Bill, cause you've got a, you've got a son, uh, young men eat Constantly. like, yeah. it's weird. To, to watch them consume food. And uh, my grocery bill went up about 30%. Bakari, this sounds like an NBC sitcom pitch. It does. <laughs> I, I want to know. British moves into former president's house during quarantine with his daughter. Only, so if, I, I only think if we can produce gonna it. going to buy this. <laughs> do, you, do you know anybody at Netflix? I mean, we, uh, there we well, go. I'll make some calls. <laughs> uh, you want to go into the book or you want to do a couple more? No, do one more question. One more uh, each. Uh, okay. I got two questions, though, so I'm going to just run them off. Ali Tyson in their prime. Mm. Ali. Who wins? Seriously? Ali. I got Ali, yes. too. Yeah. I, that might be. The, uh, I, I, look, Ty, Tyson, I'd be more scared of Al, uh, Tyson uh, in, in a in a barroom brawl. But I, Ali, the man the man went to prison <laughs> or, or, or at least was stripped of his title and yeah. Boxing was prison. at risk of going to, to jail in his prime. Comes back and still, oh uh, yeah. He beat Foreman, who was more imposing than Tyson in his prime. Yeah, and oh every, no, he and, wasn't. And he, he was he was so slow. George mystique. Foreman was so slow. He was so slow. Mike Tyson was fast and strong. George Foreman, you can go, see him go, coming. Go, go back, just just go back and watch the tapes. Yeah, you know, go, I, go watch I, the I, Frazier I am, fight. I am, not, I am not one of those guys who is always oh the older guys. It, it used to be better. I, for in basketball, for example, I'm not a believer that. You know, sometimes I get in arguments with Jordan about like, oh, you know, there's no hand checking now and this and that. These guys are soft. I I actually think basketball is better now that they're better athletes. They're more skilled. Me too. Um, and I think that's true about just about every sport. Um, it, you know, it's, it's interesting with, with football that when I was president, uh, the uh, 72 Dolphins came by because they never got their White House visit. Because uh, Nixon, uh, yeah, there was a, a few problems going Some on. Stuff <laughs> happening <laughs> with uh, with Mr. Nixon. <laughs> so, so we had them in, and uh, like those guys, compared to the guys now, are tiny. Um, you know, uh, Nick Bonacani, who's who's like their middle linebacker, is like the size of a cornerback now. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, there's just no comparison. But having said that, I got you. there are times where you, you look at somebody like Muhammad Ali, uh, that guy. Timeless. He, he was timeless. Um, my last speed round question. Would you ever play Trump in golf in a loser absolutely has to leave the country pay-per-view match? So that's it. One of you has to go. Putting all, Who's keeping all of it in? Who's keeping score? <laughs> <laughs> Who's counting strokes? Third parties. 
Yeah, third, third okay. Third party's a <laughs> I think that'd be my caveat. I'd want somebody following to make sure that, uh, you know, we were tracking every stroke. Good answer. All right, let's talk to the book. First of all, your main goal, I know, was to write a book that was longer than mine. Um, and I succeeded. You, you did it. You did it by like 50 <laughs> but pages. It, but it's only part one. <laughs> right. Yeah, part two is coming. Um, this is a super nerdy writer question. So I was struck by, A, how many details you remembered from basically the 10 years, the two-year campaign, and then, um, I guess, six years, because you, you haven't done the four yet, but I'm sure it's going right. the same thing. All the details you remembered, and then also the way you were able to color in descriptions of the people who passed through your life, right? The people in your cabinet, the people who helped with the campaign, even like world leaders and stuff like that. And it reminded me almost of if some, if a reporter had been embedded with you during this stretch, this is kind of how they would have written it. But you yeah. were the reporter, and I, I can't figure out how you did it when you're writing everything longhand, which is the craziest thing I've ever read in my life. Bakar, he didn't type in a computer. He was writing it out on paper. I know. I, I, I when, I, when I when I read I, that when I read that in the in the intro because I, I you know authors here we just had i just had a book come out too i was like this is uh kind of crazy yeah what's like, happening so i don't how did you remember all this stuff are you like one of those memory freaks who remembers every single thing you, you know it's 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 interesting i i remember scenes uh even as they happen they come to me as scenes right you know so there there are times where we'd be in the oval office and somebody would say something um, and, and it would be funny or, or scary in the case of, for example, you know, our first meeting about the economy as I'm coming in mm. where I think that was a good line, you know, uh, and, and that, you know, that, that will work, that would work as a scene. It's almost how I understand and process what's happening to me at that time. And it sticks with me. Um, so you know, I, I I didn't keep daily journals. I guess I guess Reagan and and Carter would write everything down at the end of the day. Uh, I found that I was just spent by the end of the day. You know, uh, just had too much work. Um, but I'd jot down if I if there was a memorable scene, I'd, I'd sort of just scribble something down and kind of put it in a drawer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that it would trigger a memory. Um, but but look, the other thing. It, it is true that I write out longhand initially the first draft, and then I type it in the computer, and that's kind of my first edit. Um, on the other hand, I use the heck out of a computer in terms of research, and mm. and there's no way that I would have been able to write this book without ten researchers if I'd been writing it twenty, thirty years ago. Now you've got an iPad and. You know, I could literally pull up every press conference I had had, you know, it, contemporaneous accounts of every single event that it had. You know, you just type in the date. And oh, and suddenly, it's triggering memories too, right? It's and and so back. as it as you're reading it, you're, oh, man, I, I you know. And, and so sorting out, for example, my memory about sequence was not always spot on. You know, sometimes I think something happened a little bit earlier, happened a little bit later. One of the probably the most striking things for me about writing the book 
was realizing how much went down just in the first three months of my presidency, mm-hmm. right? Things that in my mind I knew happened the first year, but then it turns out, oh, no, actually, you know, I passed the Recovery Act uh, to save the economy in the first month, and the auto bailout was a month later, and, you know— uh, L- Lily Ledbetter was, was right up li- there, too. Right. Or, alternatively, I had not remembered the fact that when we— uh, when I order uh, the raid against bin Laden, I had remembered that it was uh, at the same time as uh, uh, Trump and birtherism. Yeah. But I had forgotten that it was only a month after we had launched missiles into Libya to try to prevent uh, Muammar Gaddafi from carrying out a genocide there. It was only a month before we had a debt ceiling crisis uh, that almost spun the economy out of control again. So, so th- that's where computers came in handy. It, mm. It's just you know, uh, kind of getting the calendar of, of when all this stuff happened. But once, yeah. once, I, I had, once I'm in the scene, I, I was able to recall it pretty well. One of the, except recalling Bakari Sellers in the book, but that's yeah, okay. I, that was, I digress. That was a miss. <laughs> that's, that was a miss, but you know, it's four, four, four and three, four stars because of that omission. Um, you know, one of the things, like one of your best, one of your best pieces of oratory came in trying to convince Michelle and everyone else to, when you were, you know, going off before you went to Thanksgiving, I believe, to, to, to Hawaii to talk about running for president. And you have this quote, um, and you were talking about the reason why, why you, why me? And you say, I know that kids all around this country, black kids, Hispanic kids, kids who don't fit in, they'll see themselves differently too. Their, their horizons lifted, their possibilities expanded. One of the characters in this book that I love, that, that is one of my favorite characters of your White House is Pete Souza. He was somebody who, the photographer, I don't even know what this man looks like, Bill. I, if he walked in here, I would have no idea what he looks like. But he mm. captured all of these images and not I always tell people that the probably the best image is the image of the um, uh, bin Laden raid. But the second best image is the picture of you and Jacob Philadelphia together. Do you recall that image where the young man asked you, what does my hair feel like? And yeah. we, we laughed and joked about the successes that you may or may not have had. But one of the successes is that you realized that promise. Talk about that moment where that kid was able to reach up and touch your hair and talk about how you encompassed meaning so much to black and brown kids around the world, showing them that they could be leader of the free world too. Yeah. You know, that that is one of my favorite photographs. And it's one of Pete Souza, who was the White House photographer, not just for me, but uh, for part of Ronald Reagan's term. Um, And it just became a close friend. Uh, One of his favorite images. Uh, You know, one of the things you do as president, mixed in with going to the situation room or, uh, you know, meeting with your cabinet uh, is you just have to take a lot of pictures, right? People are coming through, visiting. Uh, there's staff turnover. And and so uh, th- this uh, African-American couple, the gentleman uh, had worked for one of the agencies. They come in with their two kids. One of them's, a, a, you know, eight. I think the other one's five. And the little boy, he's got his little tie on and his little shirt and, uh, uh, you can tell 
you know, his his mom and dad are just barely, tra- you know, keeping him neat for this photo. And uh, he he just raises his hand. He says, I got a question. Does your hair, uh, is your hair the same as mine? Does your hair feel like mine? And and I say, well, you, you know, why don't you check it out? And I, I lean down and he touches the top of my head and Pete captured the picture. And it became probably one of the favorite pictures. He uh, Pete would take these pictures and hang them up in the White House uh, in the hallways. Uh, and then he'd rotate them out usually, but that one stayed there for four years just because everybody loved that photo. Um, I, look, it, uh, I, I, I tried never to, to overstate the power of the symbolism of, of our presence in the, in the White House. Um, and I, in fact, I write in the book yeah. uh, that, you know, when I'm visiting a favela in Brazil, you know, that what they need more than just a symbolic wave from a guy who looks like them is they need better schools and, you know, uh, better health care and, and decent housing. So so it doesn't replace concrete changes in people's lives. But um, there's no doubt that uh, our presence there for a generation, it became normal and routine. It did not seem unattainable. Mm. How that ends up affecting uh, a generation of black kids, brown kids, but also white kids. Uh, you know, because what was interesting was, I, I can't tell you how many parents would come up to me and uh, say, you know, our kids think that, you know, it is a given that there'd be somebody who is darker than them who could is also the president um you know and and how that ends up changing attitudes uh for that generation coming up it, you know you, you don't know but uh I'd like to think that it opened up uh some minds and hearts uh for particularly for for younger younger people so the tail end of your book is the bin Laden raid and a little bit of the Trump birtherism stuff um, and you also kind of go backwards going to the tea party and, and kind of the seeds of everything that happened the last four years. I thought it was interesting. And maybe you're going to do this in the next volume. Um, you didn't really attribute a lot of where we are now to the internet and the ability of the internet to polarize things, to have misinformation, stuff like that. I don't even remember the last time you and I talked, I don't even think we talked about that, that piece of it. Do you look back? now and think like, man, maybe we should have regulated some of this internet stuff differently. What could I have done? Mm. Should I have put more power into um, trying to fix this before it became an issue? Like, how do you think of it now? Yeah, I, I hint at it because you know, we were early adapters of social media in the 2008 campaign. For a positive... Uh, in a positive for, for, way. Yeah, yeah. It was great for us, right? It, it was MySpace and Meetup. And it's part of the reason we were able to mobilize all these young volunteers who mm. actually knew how to work this stuff. I didn't. Um, but we had a bunch of 25-year-olds who were all like, no, really, Mr. President, this, you know, there's there's a group in Idaho, you know, Idahoans for Obama, and they're gonna uh, get organized through Meetup. And I was all like, okay, fine. And the next thing you know, you know, you've got you know, 16,000 people in a basketball stadium in, you know, red Idaho, uh, and we end up winning that 
state because of the power of, of that social connection. So I, my view was shaped by that. And I thought, this is democracy. This is going to empower citizens. People's voices are going to be heard. People are going to be able to uh, learn about each other and understand each other. Um, and even as late as the Arab Spring, which is now, you know, so we're fast forward, uh, forwarding to, to 2010, mm-hmm. uh, 2011, 2012, you know, you're still thinking that all those kids in Tahrir Square who are expressing, uh, you know, their desire for freedom and, and, and uh, expressing themselves and, and organizing these impromptu rallies that, you know, help result uh, in... Uh, overthrowing a, 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 a longtime authoritarian leader, uh, Mubarak. And you're thinking, all right, this is still a positive, uh, you know, uh, force. And it wasn't, I think, until, in, as you note, volume two, where you start realizing, well, actually, ISIS can also mobilize through social media. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, neo-Nazis also are finding themselves and each other uh, through the internet. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think that it, it is a, it's a fair characterization that um, the optimism I had about it in the first couple of years, uh, you know, uh, was shared by a lot of the folks on my staff because yeah. of yeah. where we had come from. And it wasn't until later that we started saying, okay, there's a downside here. Now, what that means, uh, you are absolutely right, Bill. If, and I've talked about this in some interviews. If you ask me, uh, what is the thing I worry about most about our democracy? Uh, D- Trump did not create uh, the kind of deep uh, polarization that we're seeing right now where Folks just occupy two entirely different realities. Yeah, he was an accelerant uh, to it, but he didn't create it. And social media is helping to drive that. the The question now, I think, becomes: Are there is there a combination of regulation, but also the companies themselves adopting just smarter practices in order to? curb some of that. We're not, mm. we're not going to get back to the time where you got Walter Cronkite and everybody's just watching, you know, three networks and everybody's completely on the same page, but we can do a better job. And, and, you know, I've, I've had conversations with the leaders of some of these platforms and reminded them, look, uh, y- y- you can pretend like you're a utility, like the electric company, but you guys are media companies and you're packaging information and your algorithms are making determinations and uh, you have some responsibility, uh, not just to increase your market share, no matter what's out there, but in fact, you have a responsibility to to make sure that um, we're not tearing ourselves apart in this country. Uh, And and it, it, it is a powerful force. I write about the fact that when I ran for the U.S. Senate uh, and as late as 2008 when I'm running in Iowa, I could go into rural communities, very conservative, almost entirely white, that 
you know, might not be obvious uh, sources of votes for me, but because uh, I could go into the local newspaper and have a conversation with the editorial board, or I could show up at uh, a VFW hall and just talk to people face to face, you know, they'd give me the benefit of the doubt. I could have a conversation. They, they might not agree with me on everything, but they'd get a sense of who I actually was. If I went to the, some of those same communities now and all they're seeing is either Fox News or Newsmax or some Facebook page in which, you know, uh, I am some wild-eyed socialist, you know, uh, who, you know, vampire, uh, you know, you, you, you can't have a conversation. The filter's too thick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it goes both ways, right? Uh, although I, there's not a... There's not a complete equivalence. I, one thing I always, and sometimes folks who are non-political, you know, who mainly cover sports, sometimes there's like, ah, both parties, you know, it's so polarized, et cetera. There is an asymmetry uh, going on right now. You know, yes. Um, generally speaking, it, it's not that there aren't some folks who have wacky ideas and are extreme ideas inside the Democratic Party, but the, the mainstream of the Democratic Party is still rooted in facts. And generally abides by, yeah, you know, the whole except for like, Bakari, yeah, but the whole idea of yeah, let's like have two, uh, two, you know, uh, sources for a story, and and uh, you know, let's listen to scientists like Fauci when he says that uh, COVID's bad. Uh, yeah, we generally are still abiding by that a little bit more. Climate change, things are getting hotter. You know, we can have a debate about whether uh, what we should do about it, but. You know, uh, those wildfires in California uh, are coming more frequently for a reason. Yeah. Go ahead, Bakari. So uh, in your book a lot, you you talk about leading up, you you talk about the differences between your presidency or, or your campaign and some of the campaigns that came before you, like Jesse Jackson, like uh, Shirley Chisholm, et cetera. Um, and what I want to you, you talk about race a lot and talking to Axelrod, he was somebody who would always say we didn't have to talk about him being the black man in the White House, you could actually see that. Something that you talk about is kind of a, a theme throughout the book. My question is, we're after George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, reading this book, how should we as a country, not just Democrat, Democrats, navigate this tinderbox of race in the country? Um, and you have, an, you have these new emerging young black and brown voters who want tangible action items from their elected representatives whether or not it's reparations, or which is a whole nother episode, or uh, whether or not it's direct infusion of capital in, into their communities. Uh, what, what should we do? How as leader of the free world or as just a, a regular citizen like myself and Bill, um, how do we navigate this tinderbox of race? Well, I, I feel more optimistic uh, about our prospects of, of dealing with some of these issues as a result of what happened this summer. Uh, not only because you saw this wave of activism among young people, uh, not only because uh, the demographic of those who marched was not always what you would expect, right? You'd, you'd have Black Lives Matters marches in small, all-white towns in Oregon or Utah. Uh, and, uh, and and that was indicative of what I told you earlier, which is young people, they believe what they've been taught about you know, people being equal and, and needing to be treated fairly. 
uh, and are disappointed when they see those ideals breached. Um, so I have huge faith in the previous generation, but also those young people were also helping to change the minds of their parents, right? And so you saw the kind of recognition that there's a, a genuine problem with racial discrimination in the criminal justice system. Uh, in polling, uh, a majority, not just of blacks, but also whites acknowledge that and that's a huge change from just 10 years ago. Uh, you know, if you would add, when you look at attitudes during Ferguson, let's say, and attitudes now, the broader population is uh, more clear-eyed in recognizing there is a problem. And, and that, I think, is promising and hopeful. Now, the issue always becomes, what do we do with that? Yeah, Once question. And and I, I think the 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 thing that I am constantly uh, urging when I'm in conversations with some of these young activists and and look you know I, I've even back when I was president I had some of the Black Lives Matter activists come in to the, the Oval Office and sat down and met with them and I stay in touch with many of them and my argument is always how do you translate your impulses into action. How, how, do you, how do you change laws? How do you change institutions? How do you change practices? And to do that, you have to be specific in terms of, you know, uh, for example, let's uh, examine how police are trained or let's examine how uh, you, know, uh, you know, district attorneys uh, are able or not able to charge uh, police if, if uh, you have a case of uh, excessive force. But you also, in order to then get those laws passed or those institutional practices changed, you have to have allies. And the, the, the one thing that I, I uh, insist on, probably partly because, you know, I have a white mother and, and white grandparents. And, and so I, uh, by necessity and by biography, I understand uh, the love and, and regard that they felt for their black grandson, uh, even if you know, uh, their attitudes weren't always perfectly politically correct. I know that they folks can be reached. I have to insist on the fact that... Uh, we have to reach out beyond our own group in order to get anything done. And that's true of all groups in America. And will be increasingly true because we are going to increasingly live in a, uh, a even more multiracial, even more multicultural, uh, multi-religious uh, society. And so uh, if we can't translate our aspirations in a way that white folks can relate to or Hispanics can relate to, we won't get anything done. And that means, for example, if we want police reform and we know that defund the police as a phrase triggers a certain uh, pushback from folks who are going to need to get something done, then is there a way for us to des uh, describe this as very concretely, you know, 
let's change how policing is done. Let's reallocate some resources so that there's more money in prevention or mental health. A, a description that doesn't trigger that same kind of pushback. Um, yeah. I, I guess the bottom line is, is that um, I think speaking truth to power about race is, is necessary, valuable, important. Calling it out when we see something wrong is cr- critical. But at the end of the day, in order to, to actually right wrongs and bring about change, you've got to invite people uh, in to help. You, you've got to be uh, willing to say to the, the broader white population, we believe that you can do the right thing and want to do the right thing, as opposed to suggesting, you know, you can't understand us and uh, this is your problem and, right? And that's just human nature. Yeah. Uh, and it is the nature of putting together political coalitions, which, uh, you know, is the essence of democracy, right? Is, is how do you get enough votes to actually make something happen as opposed to just uh, feeling uh, righteous about your own position? Well, hopefully over the next four years, we'll see that happen. This is the book. It's right there. It's a oh, ni- I gotta, nice I cover. Gotta take, I got to take my 20% off. Sticker <laughs> off. Hey, yeah. Bakari, I expect you to pay full price, man. Come on. Uh, I got twins. Hey. They're 22 months old. <laughs> I did the fair best enough, I could fair do. Fair enough. I did the best I could do. Mr. President, oh. great to see you. Um, we threw you a saw by not talking about your cigarette smoking revelations in the White House. Maybe on the next podcast, we'll talk about that. But it was awesome to see you. Great book. Great job. Thank you. Hey, Thank I, you. I really enjoyed it. And, and just to make sure, since you brought it up, the record is clear. It's been 10 years since I had a, had a had I was a proud of you. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. I was proud of you. Chewing right. the heck out of this Nicorette, though. <laughs> I got to get myself off that stuff. <laughs> All right. Good to see you. Thank you. See good you, guys. See you. My best Have to a great family. holiday. You Thank too. you, you too.